Welcome back, everybody. This is Kevin Sullivan. Thank you for downloading the Curtain Call podcast. I am alongside, as always, Mr. John J. Filippelli. Flip, how are you today? Kevin, I'm good. How have you been? I've been good. Thank you for asking. I uh, just back from the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah. I was it? It's a great game. It was a great game. It was a great game to watch. It was an exciting atmosphere. Super Bowl was a great event. And uh, fortunate enough to take my kids. And uh, I uh, we take this trip every year, my two boys and I. It's like a bonding thing for the three of us. And like a guy's weekend, if you will. And uh, interesting, I sat next to Anthony Rizzo of the Chicago Cubs. Wow, so you had good seats. Uh, they, were pre- they were pretty good, okay. uh, and uh, but the the interesting part is we tried we were trying to watch the game. Both of us we wound up talking about baseball more than half the time. We were, but a really good guy, really, really nice man, and a very accomplished player. And it was it was fun. I mean, we had a good time at the Super Bowl. Did you get into any trouble, guys? Weekend? Uh, nah, you know I, I'm not I'm not built like that. I'm a basically go to bed at nine o'clock. I have my hot chocolate. You know, uh, the kids and I, you know commiserate about the day, and then that's it. That's I'm a, very, very quiet, low, very soft-spoken family. That's a lie. You text me and call me at midnight. <laughs> <laughs> well, the talk sports, not the, you know, it's also it's all in the realm of the job, of course. All yeah, right, yeah. we we got big show today. We okay, have big show. A big lot show. to cover. I want to actually get to it fairly quickly because we have uh, John Flaherty, our own John Flaherty, with us. Uh, but before we do, I want to talk a little bit about the most recent news with the Yankees, that being James Paxton. The news is he's out three to four months following microscopic lumbar disectomy. How much does that hurt the Yankees? Well, I mean, it, it doesn't help a situation. Uh, the, Yan- the Yankees have, I mean, especially with the acquisition of Cole, the Yankees, to me, had the best starting pitching. Went from a, a, a staff that was, you know, good but not not great, had certainly had holes in it, to one that was truthfully the maybe the best pitching staff in the game, you know, one through five. And uh, to lose Paxton is, is a blow. I mean, he had a terrific second half last. He really found himself. Whatever it is that he was experimenting with, he had trouble with in the first half. He righted the ship. He felt more confident. And I think he got he got he started to trust throwing more breaking balls. Is really what I thought was the was the the main thing in his game that changed. Throwing more certain curveball. He's got a great curveball. So he started throwing more of that, and I think he found tremendous success in it. And uh, he was going to he was leveraging that. He was playing really well. And it's kind of a, it's a tough injury because it's going to take him a couple of months. To, to come back, and like I said, he was coming off a really good year, and you just don't find starting pitching in baseball. So Yankees have depth, which will, which will help them through this. And we've got Pac- you've got uh, Cole, and you've got Severino, you know. So you've got uh, you know you've got uh, Tanaka. Tanaka, right? Yeah. You got uh, you know Montgomery. You've got maybe Garcia in the wings. You've got Hap. You've got so the Yankees have depth and and, and possibilities here. But still, no, you hate to see a player, a lefty like especially a lefty. Like Paxton, you know, out of the equation for a while, and Herman, don't forget, is coming back after the break. Right. So the Yankees have pitching depth here, but but it still it still hurts a little bit to lose a player like Paxton. You said depth. I agree. They have a ton of depth there. Um, what makes me uh, not happy but optimistic, let's say, is that it's not Paxton's arm. Right. It's not his shoulder. It's not his shoulder particularly. Right. Um, the Yankees, the money is on them making the postseason regardless. Right. Uh, so if he's back for the second half, that's when you want him. That's when you need him. Yeah, but it would be nice to have for the first half. I mean, it's, you don't want to lose players of that ilk. You just don't. Because you know, every one of those guys, every one of the Yankee starters, Cole, obviously, Severino, almost obviously, too. But then, you know, you get to Paxton and Tanaka. And 
and you sit there and you say like, wow, that 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 for Herman coming back and Montgomery being able to back with the team. Here's what happened. You've got maybe Garcia in the wings and the Yankees have other prospects. You know, you sit there and say like, wow, what a what a pitching staff that is. The couple with the bullpen that they have and the offense that they have and the Yankees. I mean, to me, I mean, I want to say it, but but they are they are the World Series favorites. They have to be. I don't know. Name another team that's got their firepower, got their starting pitching or their bullpen. I haven't seen it. Well, we'll get into it later on, but the Dodgers just got really good. Well, let's just say that they, they, they took a really good team and they made it better, no doubt. Uh, and, you know, I think that they, they could give the Yankees a real run for their money for sure. But, you know, if you said player for player, I'd still take the Yankees. But I'll tell you what, Dodgers make a compelling case as well. Back to Paxton real quick. I think who this hurts the most, unfortunately, yep. is Paxton, meaning you said it before when we were talking. It's his walk year, right? Yes. To only play half a year on your walk year is tough. And Tanaka's too. A lot of pressure. Yeah, yeah. Tanaka's as well. Right. Um, you can see a scenario possibly where Paxton is putting too much pressure on himself because he only has half a year to showcase himself for free agency. And, and that's what he's got to try and st- avoid. He's got to come back. He's got to be healthy. And he's got to pitch to the form he showed in the second half of last year. And he's just got to have to just take the ball and not worry about you know, future contracts and things of that nature. If he performs, he performs well in the number of starts that he gets. You know, he'll get a significant contract from, from somebody to, to, to join the team or, or to stay with the team. That'll be in the offing. But he's just, he has to just worry about coming back, coming back healthy and performing the level which he's capable of. If he does that, things will take care of themselves. I really believe that, especially for a player like that. Well, the good news is the Yankees are no stranger to the next man up mentality. They're just going to have to do it again this spring. Um... Even more exciting, next man up for us is Mr. John Flaherty. Uh, I'm excited to have Flash. He's one of the you know the good guys of the game, and uh, you know nice career as a player, uh, and uh, was a great teammate, well respected, and uh, certainly has made a nice transition to the broadcast booth. So I'm looking forward to what he has to say. Before we get into uh, John Flaherty, I want to remind everybody: if you like what you're listening to, please rate, review, and subscribe. That is the best way to help us. Um, we do read the reviews. I have some here if you want to get into it. Uh, we want to get, why don't we get into the other side of Flash? That's actually the best idea. Let me also say real quick, uh, you can email us. We have an email address, curtaincallyes at gmail.com. We gave that out a couple weeks ago. We have some good emails. We'll get into those. Uh, curtaincallyes at gmail.com. Correct, yeah. After, I'm writing that down. You'd think we would have like at yesnetwork.com. We want everything. <laughs> I mean, we're lucky to get that. I think we blame Jason Marshall. Uh, for everything. Yes. <laughs> Rightfully so. All right. Rate, review, subscribe, please. We'd appreciate that. And after the break, we will have John Flaherty. Go behind the scenes in Brooklyn. Here we go. Higher standards. And gear up for a big season with Brooklyn Nets Magazine. New episodes every month, only on Yes. Welcome back to Curtain Call. John Filippelli, Kevin Sullivan. Our guest at this time is uh, uh, one of my favorite people in broadcasting. He's a broadcaster at Yes. Uh, he also had a wonderful 15-year career in the big leagues, uh, highlighted by a hitting streak of 27 games in 1996 when he, while he was with the Padres. And uh, coincidentally enough, one of our former colleagues, Al Leiter, actually stopped that streak. So uh, we have a I – mean, everybody's in, uh, once and twice removed here. You know, it's like your cousin once or twice removed with something along those lines. I don't know what I'm saying, but it makes some sense, I suppose. Anyway, our special guest at this time is John Flaherty. John, how are you? I'm great, guys. Thanks for having me on the uh, podcast. Appreciate it. Well, we appreciate you uh, taking the time to be with us. Okay, so we start kind of start, we start out slowly on these things, and sometimes we just die all together, or maybe we go someplace. So we're going to start <laughs> off a little slow here. Uh, which city? I mean, you played in San Diego, Boston, New York, Detroit, Tampa Bay. It's an interesting collection of cities there. 
which one of those cities was your favorite city to play in and why? Well, uh, you know, I get, I get asked that a lot. And, you know, obviously playing in Boston as a 24-year-old uh, with the last name Flaherty and being single, uh, Boston was a great time <laughs> for me at that time. Uh, but, you know, all five of my stops I, I enjoyed for a lot of different reasons. You know, Detroit playing for a Hall of Fame manager in Sparky Anderson and kind of learning how to be a big leaguer from Kirk Gibson and Alan Trammell. Lou Whitaker and Cecil Fielder was a great spot. And then, you know, you get traded from Detroit to San Diego. I mean, geographically, you don't have to say a whole lot more. It was a great change for me. And uh, playing with my first playoff team in 96 with Tony Gwynn and Steve Finley and Ken Caminiti uh, was quite a thrill. And then the five years in Tampa Bay from a family standpoint was was great. Uh, we didn't win a whole lot of games on the field, but two of my three kids were born there. And my family didn't have to move three times a year, so that was a great setup. And then finally, obviously, playing for the Yankees, coming back home, uh, was quite a thrill for the three years and uh, trying to win a championship that didn't happen. But, you know, playing in front of my family and friends for the last three years of my career was a big treat. You, you mentioned you, you mentioned an interesting subject. You mentioned Tony Gwynn uh, a little while ago. Gwynn, Jeter, Boggs, Messina, Mariano, uh, Randy Johnson, Trammell, all Hall of Famers. Uh, what was your takeaway from playing with uh, with those Hall of Famers? Well, I'll start first with Tony Gwynn. You know, being an East Coast guy and him being out in San Diego, uh, I didn't get a chance to see his uh, his entire game an awful lot, and, and really came to appreciate uh, what a great right fielder he was, what a great base runner he was. Uh, he could really throw. I mean, obviously, the, the hitting and the batting average, and he was a wizard at the plate, but he had an all-around game that I think maybe was underappreciated if you didn't get to see him play every day. And, you know, you mentioned all the other guys. They were all amazing in their own right. Wade Boggs was, a, you know, just a magician at the plate with the bat, you know, and catching some of the guys like Nusina and Randy Johnson and Mariano Rivera. They're all incredibly different personalities. Uh, you know, which had great stuff, obviously. You have to have great stuff to be a Hall of Famer, but I think their mental makeup uh, got all of them to a, to another level. And then, you know, Derek going in this summer is, is a really big thrill, and uh, getting to know him personally and, and watching him go about his business, obviously uh, the most confident player I have ever played with. He wasn't the most talented, uh, but he believed he was the best player out on the field every night he took the field, and I was jealous of that because a lot of times as an athlete, you go through the, the highs and the lows of your mental toughness, and Derek never did that. He, he felt like he was the best player on the field every night. You know, speaking of Jeter and his incredible talent, specifically in the postseason, where he really took his game, which was significant in the regular season, and he upped it in the postseason, um, you look at great players and you look at Jeter and you look at the, you guys got to the 2003 World Series after the great run the Yankees had had, it, you know, 96 and 98 and 99 and 2000 and 2001. And then you get there in 2003, and it was a, your playoff series against the Red Sox was as epic a playoff series as I probably have ever seen, I witnessed in, in my life. And then you get to the World Series, and, you know, my sense was that the Yankees, or the, even if the Red Sox had gotten there, that series was so draining, that LCS, that ended with uh, with Boone hitting the walk-off homer off of Wakefield, that, you know, no matter who you had played, the World Series in many, to many people was the Yankees-Red Sox and not so much the Yankees and the Marlins. Is that a fair statement? Oh, it's uh, it's definitely a fair statement. Uh, you're, you're bringing back so many good memories. And, 
you know, that, that Red Sox series in 03, you know, there were so many different personalities on that Red Sox club that we didn't like, you know. So I, I think there was a genuine hatred between both clubs. And then to take it all the way to, to Game 7 and have Booney hit that walk-off home run, uh, there was so much emotion, uh, so much excitement. But I think you're right. It was It was so draining for us that I remember – standing in the dugout for game one of the World Series at Yankee Stadium, and, and it was dead. It felt like a spring training game. And then I looked across the field, and, you know, you have the Marlins over there who we didn't really have any, uh, I guess, hatred would be the right word, or we didn't really know any of those guys. And it just seemed like such a different feeling from the ALCS to the to the World Series. And, you know, to be quite honest with you, Flip, uh, you know, losing that World Series at the time, I don't want to say it wasn't a big deal because it was, but that was my first year with the Yankees. And my thought was, well, these guys go to the World Series every year and and I'll have another shot at this. And that was my one shot. And uh, there were so many things that happened in that World Series that that went against us. I remember David Wells getting hurt, only being able to pitch one inning in a start. Uh, That was a big deal. But you're right. Our World Series that year was the ALCS against the Red Sox. And uh, we were drained, I think, emotionally and physically once we got up against the Marlins. John, going back to uh, Derek Jeter in the Hall of Fame for a bit. Uh, of course, Jeter going in, he's one vote shy of being unanimous. What's your take on that? Well, my my first take, and you know, I get into it all the time with Jack Curry, is you know that guy should be held accountable. The writer that did not give Jeter the vote, and and I say that because you know as players. Uh, we took a lot of pride, and, and I think I would always look at teammates and pay attention because, you know, the guy who stood in front of his locker day in and day out and answered the questions and took the heat when it was deserved and took the praise when it was deserved, um, that's what we prided ourselves on as competitors. So, you know, there's a writer out there who, who didn't vote for Derek, and I think if he if he felt that way, that's fine, but, you know, kind of put your name on it. and. You know, I thought we did a great job covering, uh, you know, the, the Hall of Fame induction with the hot stove show that we do. And we got a chance to talk to Derek, Jack Curry, myself, and Bob Lorenz. And, you know, to, to see the joy on his face, to hear it in his voice, and for him to say, it doesn't matter to him. You know, that, that was good enough for me. If it doesn't matter to Derek, then, you know what, we should just let this go and celebrate what a great career it was because it truly was incredible. But, uh, you know, a great part for me doing that hot stove show and, and talking to Derek was hearing the, the emotion in his voice and the joy because uh, as a teammate, and you guys know this, you know, covering him, he uh, he didn't give you a whole lot. And I felt like that night on that hot stove show, he gave us something that we haven't really seen. So you know Derek, um, obviously better than I do. Does it not matter to him or is he playing, is he just keeping a straight face? Oh, I I don't think it really matters to him. I, I to tell you the truth, I think there's going to be a little play with uh, you know Mariano being 100 percent, Derek not being able to get there. Uh, two two of the greatest competitors I have ever played with or against. Uh, I'm sure they're going to have a little fun with that at some point. But for you know Derek was always a guy, and he talked about it that you know he lived in the moment out on the field competing, probably better than anybody else I had ever played with because. Uh, you know, a lot of players want to tell you they're going to play pitch by pitch and, you know, what happened five minutes ago doesn't matter, but it does. You know, you, 
you know when you're struggling, you know when you're playing well, but for Derek, it never seemed to matter. So this whole thing about not getting 100% for him, he's, he's moved on already. He's, he's looking forward uh, to tonight, to tomorrow, and what's ahead for him. So uh, I don't think it's a big deal for him, which is great. Last thing on Derek for me, um, how much does it pain you, John, if at all, that the Derek Jeter game is called the Derek Jeter game and not the John Flaherty game? <laughs> <laughs> uh, not at all. No, not, come on. Know, that was no, no. That was uh, you know that was one of the obviously one of the greatest nights of my uh, my career and and one of the greatest swings of my career. And you know Derek went out there every day and did it day in and day out and had that incredible catch going into the stands and getting beat up. And there were so many emotions that night. But you know to be quite honest with you, you know being a backup player on those teams, you know. I would root for Derek and, and, and A-Rod and Sheffield and all these guys who went out there and did it day in and day out. And, and for one swing, for one moment that night, I felt like they could count on me. And so that's really all I take away from that game. And, you know, it's, it is the Derek Jeter game, and it should be. And, you know, I was just glad that we were able to win that against uh, the Red Sox, our greatest rival. You're too nice. All right. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. Uh, it, you know, John, you were really you were a good player and you were a good teammate. Uh, let's 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 call this what it is. I mean, you your contributions were significant when you with the teams that you played on. You know, you uh, whether it was you know the leadership that you showed on the field or you know your your grittiness, your determination to play the game the right way. There were a lot of things that you brought to the game when when you got to the ballpark. There just were. And uh, sometimes those uh, those attributes went unnoticed, but people who were around the game and in the game appreciated your presence in it. So let's let's call that first. Let's get that there. Uh, there's the thing about being great. Okay, at least this is my sense of it. Is that when when you're in a moment, whether it's a professional moment or your baseball moment or any moment, and it's 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 a significant moment. People who are really good at what they do, it slows down. The moment absolutely slows down for them. So they can look at it. They could scan it almost in slow motion, and they know instinctively where to go. Uh, that, to me, is the definition of people who are great at what they do. Is it fair? It's fair to say that everybody that you mentioned, we talked about the Hall of Famers, the number of Hall of Famers, they all shared that quality of in the moment, when the moment counted the most, they were in it, the moment slowed down for them, and they were able to you know, capitalize on that moment. Well, 100%. Uh, you know, I tell the story all the time of uh, the night I realized the greatness of Derek Jeter was uh, my first playoff game in 03, where I'm standing on the railing in the Yankee dugout in front of 56,000 people. I'm not even playing in the game. And my heart's racing, and I'm excited, and I'm pumped. And Derek's up at the plate in a big spot, and he takes a bad swing, and he's off balance, and he looks silly, and he looks in the dugout and starts laughing at me. Um, and to your point, Cliff, it was one of those moments where I thought to myself, this guy is treating this moment, a big moment in a playoff game, like it's a regular season at bat and it's no big deal and everything just kind of slows down and he doesn't make it bigger than what it actually is. And I think that's a lot of times what I saw with some of those great players who were teammates of mine that. You know, everybody understands how big the moment is, but when they're going through it, it's just another at bat, another pitch, another play in the field. Um, so they don't make it bigger than it actually is. And because of that, they're able to succeed a lot more than they fail. Um, and that is one of the things as a, as a mere, mere mortal 
player and an average player um, was tough because you would realize and your adrenaline would get going and you would get excited that it became bigger, and that's when uh, it became harder. But those guys, it seemed like they had the ability to never let the moment get too big. Uh, speaking about moments and seminal moments in history, uh, baseball at the moment is in a seminal moment, uh, and that would be the scandal. Um, and I wanted your take on this. I've been pretty outspoken how I feel about it and what I thought the punishment should be. But you know, I just but I do want to hear what your take is on this because I think it's a real black eye for the game. And but you know, you tell me what you think. Yeah, yeah. Obviously. Um very disappointing, a black eye, but I, but I also come from it from a, an ex-player's perspective and the fact that um, we were always trying to gain an edge, whether that was trying to pick up a pitcher who was tipping his pitches, uh, being able to pick up a catcher sequence when we were standing at second base after hitting a double. Um, and those are all parts of the game that I, that I, I tried to get an advantage of. And, and on the other side, as a catcher, it was my job to make sure opposing clubs weren't stealing our signs. So with all of that being said, I, I think it's hard, harder for the, the modern player when technology is right there in front of you and you have some front office people, analytics people, computer people, whoever they are, who uh, aren't used to spending time in major league clubhouses who are trying to help out uh, a player trying to help out a club, trying to show what their value is. So I'm sure part of this was somebody going to a player and saying, we might be able to help you do this. And from a player's standpoint, you're always looking for an advantage. Uh, I'm sure the line was a little bit blurry. Are we crossing it? Is the, you know, whatever it is. Um, but I think I, I, I'm proud of the commissioner for uh, coming down hard and what I thought you know with AJ Hinch I feel terrible for him sounded like he was against this whole thing you know the players get immunity but uh, there's a clear message out there moving forward now that that this is not going to be accepted and it's going to uh, be watched very closely so there aren't any blurry lines anymore from a player's perspective you know or you're going to know what's allowed and what's not allowed so uh, moving forward uh, the penalties are going to be even harsher. Baseball is a game that's played on the margins. And by that, I mean, you know, there, there, there isn't a lot of like leeway. And there's a lot of th- thought that goes into a game, whether it's, you know, the manager look, getting his reports, the people preparing the reports, players in the dugout trying to, you know, pick up signs from the other team, uh, you know, all th- with eyes, not with electronic means, but with their own eyes. You know, this goes down to preparation and gamesmanship. And all those things together, to me, John, as hard as everybody works, you hope to get a little bit of an edge. But you're gaining that edge by hard work and observation. And if you get that little edge and it means it, it translates to a victory, then you've, everybody has sort of done their job in terms of you know, preparing and getting information and doing, playing it the right way, as opposed to electronic surveillance, which you know, can't be tolerated. And the commissioner said he wouldn't tolerate it uh, when the Red Sox and Yankees had their little thing a couple of years ago. No, that was it. No more. I don't want to hear of it anymore. We go forward. If it happens again, there's going to be severe penalties. He laid it down. Okay. And what what happened now was to me. Again, I don't. Even, we don't even know the real level of what happened. We don't know all the facts. But what we do know right now, it doesn't trend well. And if I'm, you know, as a fan, as someone who's close to the game, as a professional, but also someone who's a fan, on occasion I could be a fan. I look at it as I love the game, and I, as we all do. And anything that questions the integrity of the contest at all, even a little bit, 
cannot be tolerated and has to immediately be addressed. And, and you know, and, and you're going to have to win the trust of the public back. I don't know the depth of this, but whatever it is, it's not trending well right now. We still don't know what's going to happen with Cora. That hasn't been, you know, announced yet over any other teams involved in this. So, again, we don't know the breadth of this thing. But right now, to me, as a fan, as someone who loves the game, it's frightening. And I, you know, it's and I'm trying to find comfort here. And I, 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 I mean, I like Rob Manfred a lot. I think the penalties that, that he put out so far, I think are fair, although I would have been much I would have taken a championship away from somebody, not given it to anybody else. You can't do that. But I would have stripped it because for, for the sake of history, history needs to recognize that something went on here that wasn't right. And no one you can't be called a champion in the column of all the people, teams that are champions, if you've done what this what allegedly has happened here. That's it. I'm off my chest now. Yeah. I feel bad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, 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 I'm sorry. I, no, I think it's no, I think it's well said, Flip. And and you know, I think in the court of public opinion, that championship that they gained is going to be tainted. So you know, I don't know if you could take it away. You want to take it away? You're not going to give it to anybody. But I think it's always going to be looked at that it wasn't legitimate. There was something. There was some cheating going on. But you know, I I get back to the commissioner and and moving forward on things because we've seen a lot of these. Um, eras in baseball. I mean, I played through the steroid era and, you know, the Major League Baseball and the commissioner then came down hard on that and have testing and penalties. And I kind of feel the same way about the commissioner now that this is an issue that's come up. Um, you know, teams have taken advantage and it's been addressed. But I'm sure there's a lot of teams out there who hope this investigation doesn't go any deeper because, uh, like I said, the lines were probably uh, pretty blurry in those clubhouses on what you can do and what you can't do. Um, and hopefully they're not going to be blurred anymore moving forward. One of the most intriguing storylines in all of this, John, in my opinion, is uh, Mike Fires. And you being an ex-player, how do you think Fires is going to be received in the clubhouse by his teammates this spring? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, and you know what, Kevin, I'm one of those guys, obviously, uh, I'm old school in a lot of ways. And, you know, what happened in the clubhouse stays in the clubhouse. You know, you, you have 25 teammates, you have uh, coaches and a manager and support staff, and, and you're really a family during the year. Um, so you try to keep everything in-house. Um, you know, that being said, you know, I also respect a man who, who stands up and puts his name on something. You know, I mentioned the Hall of Fame vote and the writer who didn't put his name on it or make it public. Uh, you know, I give Mike Fires a lot of credit uh, for standing up and, and putting his name on it. Do I necessarily agree that he did it after the fact and not when he was a teammate there? These are all things that are subject to debate. Um, so to answer your question, he's going to walk into spring training this year and, uh, you know, his teammates are going to be looking at him a little bit differently, and, and that's understandable. I'm sure there's going to be some people who are going to be uh, happy or proud that he stood up and did what he did. There are going to be other teammates who are going to be like, I wouldn't have done it that way, and maybe I would have tried to keep it in-house. But I think all of his teammates are going to respect the fact that he put his name on it, he stood by it, and he's going to deal with the consequences whichever way they come down the pike. He owns it. I mean, he owned it, and I give him a lot of credit for that. Yeah, he did. He did. Exactly right. One of the other storylines that is developing now is now as a result of this, we have Pete Rose um, looking for reinstatement. And I've been pretty uh, loud about this, is that I personally don't think what Pete Rose did was as bad as this. Um, yet A.J. Hinch has gone for a year and Pete Rose has gone for life. 
Um, what's your take on that? Do you think Pete Rose should be reinstated? Yeah, I don't see these, uh, you know, as being intertwined. Um, you know, I, listen, I, I, like I said, I'm old school. I came up a long time ago in the early 90s. And, you know, the, the gambling thing was a big thing back then. Uh, you were told about it every spring training. You, you know, you saw the signs in the clubhouse every day. Um, and I don't think, uh, you know, Pete Rose has been real forthcoming with a lot of his, uh, you know, his testimony moving forward and kind of how he's handled his life off the field. So uh, I, this is one of those ones that I, I just kind of shrug my shoulders a little bit and say, you know, what he accepted this punishment. And now, you know, years later, because of this Houston Astro thing, he's, he's bringing it up again. You know, that, that doesn't sit real well with me, but. I can understand the other side of it. The guy's the hit king. What he did out on the field, uh, you can't take away from him. It's incredible. And, you know, maybe it should be left up to the writers again, right? Try to find a way to get him on the boat or on the ballot. If they want to, you know, bring his name back back to prominence, then, then so be it. But uh, it's a lot bigger decision to be made than, than mine. John, you, you understand better than most the importance of starting pitching. I mean, caught in the big leagues, you get what that means. You get the importance of starting pitching. I mean, a lot of other things are important in the game, but I think none, none more so than starting pitching. And you caught, as we, you know, we've talked about Randy Johnson and Mike Mussiner and in a, in a closer role, you've had Mariano. I mean, it's his three Hall of Famers right there. And so you, you get all this. And the Yankees went out and they got Garrett Cole, which was a tremendous acquisition for the Yankees and a piece they really needed. But now we find the news out about Paxton. Um, the, I, does that? How much does that upset you, bother you, or do you feel the Yankees have enough depth to sort of, uh, you know, not to worry about it too much? Well, I think first of all, with the Paxton news, I was disappointed just because I felt like he went through some some injuries last year, and he came back and he made some adjustments with throwing the breaking ball a lot more in the second half, and the results were were a lot better. So I was excited to see him for a full year and see what the numbers might look like at the end of the year. So I feel for him and then he's going to miss a couple of months. But with all that being said, you know, Brian Cashman and, and you guys know this, David Cohn talks all the time, you know, you're going to need eight, nine, ten starting pitchers. And you know, Brian Cashman has some depth now, you know, Jordan Montgomery is the first name that comes to mind as a kid that I was happy that he got all the way back from Tommy John, had some success, has a, a, a healthy off season ready. He'll get an opportunity, but you know, to your point, Flip, uh, you know, when you bring in a guy like Garrett Cole, and if you're one of those Yankee teammates who walks in the clubhouse the night that he's pitching, uh, you feel so good about your chances of winning that game that there, there's a swagger, there's a confidence that is hard to put into words. Um, there's a pitching advantage every day that he takes the mound. So, you know, you're staying away from some losing streaks. And you're also winning some of the biggest games of the year because of him. So, you know, I applaud the Yankees and the Steinbrenner family for going out there and making sure that this got done because I felt like that was really the, the one piece of the puzzle that was missing the last couple of years, that that guy that you knew he was going to go out there, you know he's going to go out there in a big spot in a playoff game and be able to carry a team, not just win the game, but give the bullpen a break so they're rested for the next night. Speaking of seven or eight deep, uh, you made the transition to the broadcast booth at Yes. What was that like going from the field to the, to the I'm sorry, going, what? <laughs> going from the field to the broadcast booth? I mean, how, how much of a transition was that for you? And uh, 
why did you decide that you wanted to go into broadcasting? I'm just, I mean, I mean, I kind of know some of this, but I don't know all of it. So I, I need you to fill me in here for the first time. I well, need you to answer. there we go. go ahead. Listen, uh, you know, when, when I retired spring training in 06, you know, I, there was some you know auditions out there for, for me to, to try out to see if broadcasting was something that I wanted to do. Uh, Flip, you and I had a nice conversation before I went to uh, spring training with the Red Sox and, I just tried to kind of pick your brain on what it was all about and your thoughts on if you thought I could do it, all of those things. So when it all came down to it and, and you were nice enough to offer me a, a spot with yes, I I thought the greatest thing that you did for me was you threw a microphone in my hand and said, go do it. And, you know, it was it was kind of that, you know, go interview a couple of guys out on the field as a field reporter um, and kind of just find your way and do it your way and see if you can do it. First of all, if you like doing it, second of all, and um, you know, that first year in 06, I thought, uh, you know, you did a, you made me feel so comfortable going from field reporter. And then you put me in with Bob Lorenz in the studio to see how that was going to go. And, and, you know, Bob obviously makes everybody feel so comfortable. And then finally you gave me some chances in the booth uh, with guys like Jim Codd and, you know, Michael Kay and Bobby Mercer and Kenny Singleton. So it was such a, a nice transition that first year and something that I thoroughly enjoyed that, you know, when I, when I want to do something, I, I really, I try to work at it and try to be the best I can be, no matter if it was a player or a broadcaster. So that year in 06 for me and the way that, that you brought me along was a, a great transition. And uh, after that year and even not even after during that year, I knew it was something I wanted to do. Um, and try to get better at. So it was a perfect transition for me. Besides having to take my advice, what was the hardest part of, of this transition to the booth? What, what, what was the hardest part? To you, what's the hardest part about being a broadcaster? Well, I think the initial part is that you don't feel qualified. And, you know, the one of the greatest conversations I had with you at the beginning of my broadcasting career was you told me, you know, your qualifications are you played 14 years in the major leagues and you live this, you know it, so you're qualified. And, you know, to be quite honest with you, you come as a player on the field, you're in the booth, you feel like a fish out of water. I don't have any experience. And that conversation for me went a long way. And, you know, the other part of it was, you know, I was, I was broadcasting games with uh, friends out on the field and teammates that I had played with. And, and guys who are struggling and, you know, a job as a broadcaster, obviously, is you, you have to be honest and you have to point out some of the struggles and, and doing that and being a little bit critical of some of your friends wasn't the easiest thing in the world. But um, you also told me and taught me about balance and, you know, you can be critical at certain times, but then on the other side, you can explain why things are happening and, and you know, why things are going to get better. So, there, there were so many, so many lessons that that you taught me along the way, especially in that first year. That uh, I still feel like all these years later, I, I remember them. I, I try to use them, and you know, a player today who I don't have a personal relationship with who's struggling, uh, I always try to remember what it was like as a player to struggle and be fair. You know, bring it up, but also balance it out and and move forward. That was an unbelievable answer to a really short question. Uh, <laughs> that was really Hello, good. pot. This is the kettle. <laughs> I guess that's some, that sounds like me. That's unbelievable. <laughs> that's true. Hello, that's true. Oh God. Uh, I have I have a question. One more. Uh, here's my question. 
if you could play, you could, you know, you understand the history of the game. You, you've studied it. You, you, you recognize the game. You've, you've played it. You have context to history. What to you, if you could have played in one game that you didn't play in the, in the history of baseball, this is a pretty broad canvas you got here, John. Uh, what game would you have played in and, and why? Of all the games in the history of baseball, other than the ones you played in, what game would you have liked to have played in and why would you have liked to play in that game? Wow. Um, I think now being able to look back as an ex-Yankee and being able to play for the Red Sox at the beginning of my career, I, I loved that rivalry between the Red Sox and the Yankees. And I think back to that one-game playoff at Fenway Park that, that um, Gator Ron Guidry started, where it was all or nothing, do or die, one game. Uh, I would have loved to have caught you know, I would have loved to have caught Gator that day at Fenway Park. Uh, you know, Red Sox, Yankees, one game all on the line, winner takes all. And obviously Thurman Munson was catching that game. So, you know, uh, I'll defer to Thurman, who was one of my idols, and say, I wouldn't have minded being a backup catcher to Thurman Munson that day and sitting in the dugout and being part of that history uh, because I think those Red Sox-Yankee games are, are so special when I look back at them. They're very intense. I mean, that's when the intensity gave a new uh, meaning to the word intensity. Oh, yeah. All right, I have one more. Uh, John, you played in Boston. We're talking about the Red Sox now. How do you think Boston fans are feeling today after the Mookie Betts-David Price trade? Well, I'm sure they're, uh, they're not real happy. You know, there, there's such a difference. There's a lot of similarities, Kevin, but a lot of differences between the fan base. And in that, I mean, you know, the, the Yankee fan base, there's a confidence. There's, there's an arrogance. They're, they're proud of their franchise. Uh, Red Sox are the same way, but they take it very personally. And to have a good team the last couple of years, and now they've had to trade their best player uh, because they don't want to sign him long-term. And I, I know it's a business. I, I know all of that. But those fans, I'm sure today, are pissed off that Mookie Betts is no longer a part of their organization. Uh, homegrown kid, MVP, World Series winner, all of those things. Um they know that their team is not better today than it was a couple of days ago. So uh, they're probably not real happy, and they're, they're probably not very good at seeing the big picture. Uh, and I understand it was a business decision that probably had to be made, but it, that doesn't explain it to those fans up there because they're pretty passionate about their club. John, I want to thank you. Kevin, I want to thank you for your, your time today. It was a lot of fun. Uh, you're a good broadcaster. You're a solid player. And uh, we thank you for your sharing some of your insights into the game and everything. Well, thank you, guys. So thank I enjoyed you. the time. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see you in Tampa. I'll see you in spring training. Sounds good. Bye-bye, Joe. later, guys. Bye. I'll tell you, Flash is a really good guest. He's, uh, he knows his stuff. He's a lot of fun, and what a good guy. Top five guest, maybe? Yeah, I would yeah. say I'd yeah. say yes, absolutely. He's uh, he's he's uh, when people say like when people say to me, "Am I the, you're the best?" I go, "No, I'm in the top five. But <laughs> <laughs> no, but he's a he's a solid guest. He's a good guy, and it was uh, nice of him to give us some time today. Uh, yeah, um, I hate to segue off of this, but I was reading reviews before, and a lot of people liked the Susan Waldman episode. So go back, please, and listen to that in the uh, archives. Sorry, Flip, I stepped on your. No, that's all right. We've you know we've had a lot of wonderful guests and. Uh, and you know, and, and I mean, they're all—they all obviously they all know the game. They're fun. They're, they've had interesting lives. I mean, we 
that's part of the criteria. We try to take people that we, we first of all, we have to know them because else we don't know them. It's pretty hard to get them as guests. But if we can get them as guests, I mean, they, they usually fit an interesting criteria in that they're they're smart, they're funny, and they they, uh, they can bring something to, uh, to to this podcast that obviously we can't bring. So it's wonderful to have them. You know, we do two types of shows. We do a show sometimes it's we try to go down the educational road and, and then we try to go down on other shows that's educational but also informative and, and having a guest who's, uh, you know, could uh, make some statements and uh, understands the game and our audience can relate to. I really liked what Flash um, had to say about the Hall of Fame voting with Jeter. Mm-hmm. Uh, he felt strongly that mm-hmm. the voter, he or her, uh, should reveal themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I feel the same way. I mean, I, I if you're going to listen, it's their right. I mean, you could agree or disagree, and I would, can't believe anybody would agree with that Jeter doesn't belong in the Hall of Fame. Of course, he belongs in the Hall of Fame. And, you know, if you, I, who, how could you possibly cast a dissenting vote? But if you're going to cast a dissenting vote, then you, you really owe it to the world. And when the world is asking, how did you cast that vote, to explain it. You know, if you explained it to to my satisfaction or anyone else's satisfaction, then you've explained it. I, I but to me, I don't, there is no there is no answer other than he belongs in the Hall of Fame, and it's a silly it's a silly contrarian vote. Sorry, it's everybody's right to have a vote, but in this case, it's silly and contrarian, and it should be thrown out. But but listen, it, it, at the end of the day, look. So he didn't get it unanimously. He, got, he was an overwhelmingly. He got one vote of dissent. That's that's pretty special. And as, as we've talked about, Jeter didn't care. I mean, he was just happy to be in, and that's the way he looked at it. And that's why Jeter was as great as he was, because he didn't let little things bother him. To your point, it doesn't matter. He's in the Hall of Fame. Nobody is in the Hall of Fame more than somebody else. No. I mean, <laughs> the people who just eked in, or irked in, eked in, whoever it is, yep. like Larry Walker just got in. It took him 10 years to get in. Right? Yeah. But he's in. He's in. And nobody's going to look at it and say, well, he took 10 years to get in, or this guy took five years. No. It's like there were people who were first ballot. They should have been unanimous. I mean, why was Junior Griffey not unanimous? We give this forever. Tom Seaver, you know, not unanimous. You know, I mean, Sandy Colfax, not unanimous. Babe Ruth was like Babe, 86%. Yeah, I mean, I, it was a slow day. I mean, I, I don't <laughs> get it, but, but why he wasn't. But you know what? Look, at the end of the day, people had their reasons for whatever. And I, I don't agree with them. We don't agree with them. But they, the, the bottom line is they got into a place of special honor in the game, and they're there. The story isn't should he be unanimous is he a Hall of Famer? Is he a first ballot Hall of Famer? For me, the story is we have a reporter who made it more about the reporter. You know what I mean? The reporter should yeah. be doing the news, not be the news. Oh, wait. This is a scoop now. There's a reporter who made it about themselves as opposed to making it about the story. I have never heard anything like that in my life, Kevin. That is a scoop right there, pal. We got a scoop. You don't pay me just to sit here and look pretty. I really don't. Thank God. We don't, <laughs> that's what we're paying you for. But, I mean, you get – I mean, come on now. I mean, this is like – it would be the first sports writer to do this, by the way. But but having said that, come on. I mean, how can you – how can you – do justice to your profession, the president of baseball, president of sports, right? An honor that you get, which is to decide who goes to the Hall of Fame, and to, to, to throw a vote, to do that so cavalierly and so ridiculously. I'm sorry. I mean, they should take that guy, they should take the vote away or have him explain it. If you can't explain it to the point of the jury of public opinion, yeah. then throw him out. He doesn't deserve a vote. Sorry. Yeah, I mean it is it is a museum after all. I'm sorry, that's what it is too. But I mean, I mean that in the nicest possible way. It's a place of honor for the players and everything. But at the end of the day, it's not heaven. It's a museum. So, right? Am I wrong? It's not heaven, no. No. So you know, it is what it is. But but it is a place of special honor for the players, and they do take it seriously, and they should. It's a it's their way of honoring their best. The best of the best belong in the Hall of Fame, and Jeter is among the best of the best. Make no mistake about that. I've never been to heaven, but I don't think it is heaven. I've been in Iowa. <laughs> Is this heaven? Yeah, remember that? Yeah, that, that was great. The dreams? That's right. That was good. I've movie. been in Iowa. Yankees are going back to Iowa. 
Yeah, you're gonna get me tickets, right? Uh, did I tell you that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, everything has a price. You know, just so you know. You sound like the million dollar man. That's right. That's that DiBiase. That's right. Uh, you're going all Bruce Pritchard on me now. Don't do that to me. Don't go down that road. Uh, gutless puke. Is that what they called the writer, Dan? Yes. That is correct. Michael K. Michael K. Uh, the other day called the writer a gutless puke. That's our producer, Dan Bassone. And I agree. It's gutless puke. But let's move on. Wow, that's heavy. It's a heavy label there, right there. Michael K. Yeah. Well, I don't mean Michael. I mean like a gutless puke. I mean that's a heavy. <laughs> don't you think it's a heavy label? It is. It is. But you know what? I, I, Look, it, 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 that kind of response is because Michael's passionate about his belief that Jeter should be a unanimous Hall of Famer. That's the, any of us who've been around Jeter, who watched him play all the years, and we were privileged to do so. Say, so how could he not be unanimous? But but you're losing sight of, of the greater honor. The greater honor is that he's in, and you know he's so he didn't get unanimously. Some 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 person who doesn't obviously get the game decided that uh, he didn't want to make Jeter, didn't want to cast the vote for Jeter. And that's fine. Jeter got an overwhelmingly in spite of them, which is another story. So, listen, you, you you try to just treat it as the anomaly that it is, not get too worked up about it, and enjoy the fact that Derek Jeter is in a place where he belongs, which is Cooperstown. Switching gears a bit, um, Flaherty talked a little bit about this recent Red Sox trade. Of course, bets and price over to uh, the Dodgers. Um a lot of unhappy fans, I would imagine, in Boston, particularly, I want to know from you, Flip, did Boston get the value in return for a 27-year-old franchise former MVP? I think in this case, what they were really looking to do, the value to them was to get under that cap, that salary cap. I mean, they were going to face with a punitive tax they didn't want to pay, and they had to make those moves. I mean, financial, look, they, they recently won a World Series. You know, two years ago, they won a World Series. So, you know, and they've won them before. It's not like they're looking at history saying we have to win. They've won enough the last 10 years or so. So there really wasn't, to me, that overwhelming need for them to win right now again. Uh, they could take a little hiatus. I think they looked at the Yankees and saw the Yankees could possibly be a steamroller. And, you know, it was going to be hard for them to compete, to be honest with you. I think they looked at it as, at least for the division, they certainly could have competed for a wild card. But I don't think, I think they were looking sort of a longer view and said, you know what, uh, it's, we're ever going to do kind of a rebuild. It's like now. So I think we have to sort of try to get some, some youth in here, some, some farm play. I mean, I don't know what their farm system is like. I don't suspect it's very strong right now. I think they've, they've made a lot of trades and a lot of deals. So they've given up some, some, a lot of their players. So I don't know how strong it is. I suspect that the farm system is not very deep, and they had to start looking at what they're going to do down the road. And I think they decided to right now uh, you know, start to shed some money which had to be important to them because at some point you need that money to, to acquire players and to do things. And the only way they were going to get that money was to sort of shed the payroll that they needed to shed. So, look, Betts was in his walk here. This was going to be for Betts. And if the, if the Red Sox didn't really feel they had the money to support the $28 million they won in arbitration, what could possibly make you think that they had the money beyond this year, which was probably going to be a wash year for them anyway, that they would be able to keep him and sign him long term? Because I'm telling you right now, Betts is a $35 million year, 35 plus million dollar a year player when he goes to free agency he'll be that and I don't think they wanted to be put in that position so they just did the they sort of early terminated if you will and they did what they needed to do and and so they, they made the you know they did that they, again it was the shed they did they made those deals to, sh to shed money and price was a price was interesting too because where are you like if you took the, I think it was 42 million dollars is what they what they basically saved and what they 
you know, they split the deal with the uh, with the Dodgers, right. so I think they're each on $42 million each. But having said that, where are you going to get a starting pitcher, the way starting pitching is priced these days, no joke, price, price, but, you know, price is, a th- is at worst a three starter. It could be a two in some cases, but probably a three. Where are you going to get a solid three starter for that kind of money? So, you know, they gave up a starting, a strong starter. But again, I, I guess their feeling was they felt this wasn't going to be their year, and if they were ever going to sacrifice, this would be the time. What I don't get is the hurry. Why was there such a hurry to pull this off? Because as you said, they were a playoff caliber team as they were built. Uh, who's to say they don't get off to a 20-5 and five start? And, hey, they could make the postseason and catch fire. But I, what, I'm, what I'd be curious to see is that I don't know this. I'll be honest with you, I don't know this. What is the, you know, when you talk about salary cap, is it by opening day they have to be at a certain number? Is that when the number actually counts? If oh, that, good question. I mean, if that if it is by opening day, maybe our listeners can help us out here, uh, or we could have a little bit. What is that person we call all the time? Google that person. Google. Maybe Google might know this. Um, Jeff Quagliato, our head of research, we'll ask him. We'll ask him. We'll ask Quags about this. When uh, when does that number for the salary, the actual salary cap, kick in? Because if the Red Sox had were way over, they would have paid a very punitive tax. At some point, that tax is due, whether it's opening day or not. I don't. I believe it's opening day, but I'm not sure. If that's the case, then you know why they made the deal now. I would think it's like throughout the year, a number of days. I don't know how. They ca- I'll be honest with you. I don't know how they calculate that aggregate. that particular tax. Okay. I mean, it's really it was called the Steinbrenner tax for a long time because what it was put in place to defeat some of the owners against themselves, played against themselves, who were spending huge amounts of money on player acquisition, and there were some teams that quite candidly couldn't keep up with them or come close to them. So they sort of put a tax in place that said if you went and signed players over a certain amount of money in terms of an aggregate for a team, that that money would be split among the teams who were deemed as being sort of salary uh, salary pool challenged, if you will. Mm-hmm. And and that's why that was put into place. But it's called the George Steinbrenner tax for a long time. So the Sox get under the Steinbrenner tax, as you say. Yeah. Um, the Dodgers are the beneficiaries, yeah. making them the team to beat, right? Well, in the National League, they're the team to beat. I still think the Yankees are a better ball club. But, but having said that, they got a very good baseball team. And, you know, now I think they're really going to be pushing because you've only got a window of a certain amount of years. And especially if this cheating thing is proved to be totally accurate and correct, which I believe a lot of it is, is there, and I believe there'll be more. Uh, so it'll come out to say, like, wow. We can, and they can make the case of, well, I don't know if they would have won or, or not, had this, everything been on the up and up. But, but let's just say their chances would have been better than if they turned out. And if I'm them, I feel that I went to World Series two years in a row. There wasn't one World Series I would have won because of some of this. Right. And the answer is they would have won, maybe one. And Yankees have the same claim. Yankees could say they would have gone to World Series and won at least one. That's why I don't think the, the Astros or the Red Sox, when this is all said and done, should be called champions for those particular years. I think 17 and 18 should be stripped away. I'll tell you who is probably the most excited and nervous because of this trade, and that's Dave Roberts. Excited, he's got a great team. Nervous, if he doesn't win with this one. Yeah, well, the pressure's really on him, and the pressure's been on the last couple of years. And, you know, I, they've made some questionable decisions in the, in the World Series uh, that cost them for sure. But, you know, again, you, you don't know who had what. I mean, I, I, I hate to think the World Series was somehow compromised. I really do. I mean, because it's the purest in me, it's the lover of the game in me. I don't want to see anything that hurts the game. But I mean, how does this not hurt the game? I mean, especially the World Series, whenever the stakes are the highest, to have you know the 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 integrity of the of the competition being questioned. I don't know how you could do that. I don't know how baseball doesn't take a hit out of this. I mean, it's tough. 
Speaking of, what, when does the Red Sox punishment coming down? What's taking so long? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, Rob has obviously got some something in mind here. Uh, something is a lot stronger than was first believed for it to have taken, it's taken as long as he has. Yeah. There's something going on for sure. It has to be. Yeah, and I, I think it has wider legs than this anyway. That's my sense. And um, I wonder why they haven't hired a manager yet. I mean, five days till pitchers and catchers. Yeah. I mean, did you like the Mets hire? I did. I didn't at first. Yeah. Um, after hearing him talk, he, he really sounds like somebody who gets the media, gets the players. The players love him, apparently. I'm okay he's with He's a solid that. guy. He's a solid guy. Yeah. I mean, he's a solid guy. The players like him. He knows the game. He's very low-key demeanor. I think, I mean, look, Dusty Baker got high at Houston. I, I think clearly. That's the right move. It is the right move, although I'm a big Buck guy. I really love Buck Showalter, and I would have liked to have seen him land someplace here because I think he's got a lot yet to give to the game. And I, it was sort of bothering me that he didn't get a chance to come back to the game. But having said that, I mean, Dusty Baker is a solid choice. And, uh, you know, he's another guy who loves the game, understands the game, and is, uh, you know, can, can deal with the ups and downs of a ball club, can deal with all the everyday problems that one's faced with in, in managing, can understands the front office, sort of knows how to collaborate and also knows how to, to conciliate. I think those, are two, those two C words are important. Collaborate and, and, and conciliate. Back to the Mets, there's news today that we should probably speak of, right? So, what's the news? Um, well, it looks like, and you know, we've been uh, hearing some rumblings the last couple of days, but yeah. we don't really know what's going on yet. But the deal's going to blow up, the Wilpon deal, yeah. sale to, um, is it Cohen? The sale, not, yeah. right, right, not the sale, the sale of the, the Mets to the, right. right. Yeah. Um, you know what? I don't feel. I mean, this is first of all, this is new news, right? So I don't feel comfortable enough sort of talking about why this is, if in fact it's all correct, because you know, there's a lot of things flying around right now, the charges being made. A lot of people have theories and opinions about why this Met deal has blown up. Other than the fact that it looks like it is blown up, no one really knows the reasons right now. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of people sort of speculating about well it could have something to do with control of the team and who has control of the team uh, whether it's the Wilpons or it's it's Cone and it'll take five years which was originally stated but now everybody wants to move up and you know I bought the team I need to do this we don't know we just there's so many things flying around I would rather we wait to it's uh, a good question Kevin and I'm not trying to duck it I'm just saying I think we better off waiting to our next installment to talk about it when we know some of the facts are out because right now there's too many things that just are either don't make sense or need to be out for this narrative to, to be the narrative. Hey, that's a reason why people have to come back and listen. That's exactly right. And in the meantime, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed <laughs> to write, rate this thing, right? Yeah. Re review it, subscribe to it, and something else. Is that it? Rate, review, subscribe. That's you got it. it. We don't ask anything more than that's that. That's your homework. It that's, takes, that's it. It takes do, two minutes. Did we get any questions from anybody? We or? did. We did. Uh, All let right. me throw some at you here. I'm ready. This is from uh, Steve Burke writes in. Steve Burke, the yeah. guy from the Cap Cities. Who? The guy who ran Cap Cities, Burke. That Burke? No. Who's that? You know, oh, CBS? No, ABCs, Cap Cities. Remember all those people that bought you know, they bought ABC? They were Cap Cities, and yeah, Burke came in, and he didn't get the Cap Cities. Right. No, no. right, see, this guy does not know his broadcast history. I'm very disappointed. <laughs> that's right. Folks, that's your homework. Find out who Steve Burke was, and, and let us know. I know who he is. Kevin is a little lacking here, so Kevin needs to help, so let's fill him in. You know how to do that by rate reviewing, subscribing, and writing a little note. There you go. Flip, keep up the great work. Right, Steve Burke. <laughs> I love Steve Burke. <laughs> I love the podcast. I don't know why he didn't say Flip and Kevin, but uh, apparently he, he only must listen to this thing. There you Jeez. go. Jeez. My question to you is: After all that you have accomplished in your career, what made you want to get into podcasting at this point in your career? 
the boredom with my life. Oh. But, no, we maybe get into this. I, I I don't know. I was intrigued by the idea. It was John Littner actually came up to me with the idea. And said, our president. Our president uh, of the company. And uh, a good guy and an astute follower of broadcasting. That's why I'm amazed he even asked me this question to do this. But I, <laughs> I, I questioned it. I said, no, I don't want to do that. Why would I want to do that? But the mayor thought about it. I said, you know, it might be a lot of fun. And I had a chance to work with you. And I, I knew you through uh, dealing with you on a daily basis and d- digital media and stuff. So... I, I got to know you really well, and I like the idea of working with you. And I, if Kevin, if Littner thought it was good, I, I really like John. I respect for him. He's a, he's terrific at what he does, and he's been a good friend of mine for many, many years. And uh, so I said, all right, I'll you know I'll give it a shot. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's only a podcast. I'm not gonna worry about it. And you know I'll just do my best. And you know we've we've come. I think we've gotten better as we've gone along with this thing. I feel better each week that we've done it. I feel more like myself. I'm. I enjoy working with you, and I think we've had a lot of fun. And judging by the, some of the notes and mail that we get, people have been very entertained by us and enjoy what we do. And I'm very grateful for that because who knew what we were dealing with when we started? You know, uh, not everything is going to be perfect. We've uh, we're, we had a lot to learn, and I, we thank those of you who stayed with us, and there was a lot of you who did, and from from the very beginning. So thank you for staying with us. We appreciate that, and uh, hope we've given you what you're looking for in a podcast. And uh, there's a lot of podcasts out there. Some are really very good, you know. So you know, you can go other places, I suppose. But I'm, I'm really glad that we're among your podcast choice because we've been nothing but grow from the beginning and we're very grateful to you for making that happen that's a great point people are staying with us one and telling their friends because you see our numbers going up each week we don't say thank you enough that that really does help us we really don't and i'm really running out of friends to thank so (laughs) let's go here straight review subscribe baby let's read some uh, of the reviews that are on itunes all right let's go this is from laxy 10 that's somebody's name Laxy 10. What's a laxy? I don't know. We have to ask laxy 10. <laughs> All right. Laxative? I don't know. No, no. It can't be that. Lacrosse? Lax- maybe. Maybe. Well, laxy says, show is good. Yeah. Listen if you like good stuff. Keep it up, Flipping Kevin. I like that. That was a five-star review. That's, was that the recently? When was that? That was on uh, January 26th, so not too long ago. No, that's when we went off for a little bit of time. We didn't do a show last because of the Super Bowl. Right, right. So, yep. Uh, extreme Yankee fan. There is no Yankee podcast as interesting as this one. Great guests, insights, stories. Flip and Kevin, at least they mentioned me this time, have a good time. And so do I listening to them. All right. I like that. I, uh, I'll have to thank myself. <laughs> That's very nice. That's very nice. Whoever wrote that, thank you very much. Greens and Beans says, I listen to all the Greens Yankees podcasts. Beans. Greens and Beans. Mm. Greens yeah, okay. Right. Uh, I listen to all the Yankees podcasts, and this one is refreshing. Different from all the others. Keep up the great work. If you want your podcast, your review read here, just simply leave us one. We'll read it next week. That's right. We, we absolutely will. So we appreciate your time. Thank you for supporting us. And uh, I think it's time, in the words of Ashley Fugazi, to land this plane, don't you? Let's land this bad boy. Okay, it's getting landed. Here we come in for a landing. We'll see you next week. In the words of Mr. John J. Who's the word? Ashley Fugazi. Oh, in the words of <laughs> the, great Ashley Fugazi. At the great Ashley Fugazi. Let's land this plane. Land this for plane. Let's Kevin go. Sullivan. I said for runway. Kevin Sullivan. Need a bigger runway. Four. John J. Oh, no, Landy, Kevin Sullivan. Oh, I should have had to dessert. We're going to cry.